This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for healthcare providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision making and judgment of a qualified healthcare professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. I'll be talking about um, the, um, the studies that uh, ourselves and others have been engaged in that suggests that uh, CO2 is probably, although it's a waste molecule, is a, a good molecule. I'll start and uh, finish this presentation by saying these are preclinical or preliminary studies. These are, these are not recipes for practice. In terms of targeting CO2, we've a long literature, a long history of measuring blood gases and responding to them. And when we wonder, how did we get here? Well, this is a case report from the uh, 1990s. It's a, a characteristic of many such case reports, whereby Adnet and colleagues working with Didier Payan described prolonged severe hypercapnia complicating near-fatal asthma in a, a middle in a 35 year old woman and many of us would have managed patients something like this whereby you simply are unable to ventilate a patient their PaCO2 is extreme by any standards a PaCO2 over 200 is extreme with profound respiratory acidosis and what do you do well if you're young and um, very keen you might try and try and try and ventilate that patient uh, but if you try to do that with extreme ventilatory maneuvers, very high pressures or tidal volumes, what you'll end up doing, of course, is shredding the lungs. If you can bronchodilate the patient or wait until the patient's disease uh, abates, as happened here, then the outcome will likely be a whole lot better. It was in pediatrics and neonatology. Svani said her husband is a neonatologist. Well, J.T. Wong is a neonatal practitioner, an anesthesiologist in Columbia University in New York. And what he described was what was subsequently described as permissive hypercapnia by Hickling and colleagues in adult ARDS. And what J.T. Wong did was completely revolutionize, not with an RCT, but with an observational study, a small number of kids who had persistent pulmonary retention of the newborn. And the standard therapy there, in order to try to reduce the PVR, which of course is a real inherent problem in that condition, was to hyperventilate with extreme measures. And he re reckoned that, that in fact caused physical damage to the lungs, and he backed off. And he used non-invasive ventilation just as support, and uh, was able to describe far better outcomes in a cohort. Keith Hickling, in a retrospective and then a prospective, uh, controlled study was able to demonstrate the same with patients whom he thought had adult ARDS. Uh, John Laffey, a colleague of mine, uh, wrote this uh, um, uh, uh, schematic in the uh, article he wrote for The Lancet in 1999, whereas uh, he described traditional therapy uh, is really based in the operating room. Uh, traditional ventilation whereby the tidal volume was high, the carbon dioxide was considered, you know, bad gas and the lower the better, certainly it should be normal, but the outcome subsequently was realized was the potential for lung injury, particularly if the lungs were injured to start with, and in this context there may in fact be systemic injury. 
with uh, Keith Hickling and the idea of permissive hypercapnia, the notion became uh, accepted that the high stretch was bad and you should target a low stretch. If you do that, of course, there's only so much you can increase the minute ventilation, the CO2 will be high. It was never thought at those sta that stage that the high CO2 of itself was a benefit. It was thought that it was probably not good, but it could be tolerated, and the CO2 was a bystander. And the outcome was reduced lung injury because of the low mechanical stretch. The idea then, the therapeutic hypercapnia, probably a premature word, because it kind of implies that you might use it on patients. And we would not recommend at this stage that you use this as a therapy on patients. But of itself, it says that CO2 can, under certain circumstances, be protective, independent of the amount of ventilation. And so when you deliberately elevate CO2, you can also reduce lung injury and also reduce systemic injury. And this is the uh, article that John wrote, uh, which is an example of a completely biased review. Everybody these days wants balanced reviews. We've no interest in a balanced review. We wanted to get the point of view across. And so in a characteristic style, we listed every possible benefit of CO2 and omitted every possible harm. Just so you understand one side of the argument very, very clearly. I know that's not very polite, but it's the only way to get your point of view across. And what you can see is that there are a large number of ways that hypercapnia can be anti-inflammatory. There are a large number of ways on a global and on a microcirculation level whereby we know that oxygen delivery is increased with hypercapnia and consumption, because the cellular metabolism is suppressed, is reduced. So the O2 supply-demand balance is favorably impacted. Well, does it work? Well, Keizo Shibata, who worked with us several years ago, um, studied this in a rabbit lung. Now, we don't treat rabbits, and we sure don't treat isolated rabbit lungs. So you can be a bit careful about generalizing this. But if you happen to be treating a rabbit lung in your ICU, and you subject the rabbit lung to ischemia and reperfusion, you will get leaky lungs, like what you get with reperfusion. And here's the model. Here is the leakiness, the KF from the Starling equation. And here is normal capnia before and after reperfusion. And after reperfusion, this is by design, there's a big increase in the leakiness of that lung. But if you did reperfusion in the context of a very high, and that would be a very, very high level of CO2, 25% CO2, there's a big, big drop in the amount of damage. The ventilation is the same. What we control here separately is added CO2 to the inspired gas. So, so far, that seems pretty good. So John Laffey then took up this and uh, studied in rats. And he didn't just look at the lung, he looked at a whole animal. So this is an anesthetized rat who has an operation, a laparotomy. And the mesentery is made ischemic and then reperfused. So it's much more relevant to a critical care scenario. Of course, it is not an ICU patient scenario, but it's more relevant to it. And what you can see here is the lung leakage, Evans blue leakage in the BAL fluid after reperfusion of the mesenteric artery. And if you add no 
extra CO2 to the inspired gas, such as what we usually do, you get a certain amount of injury. And the more CO2 you add to the gas, the less injury that you get. And you say, well, that's very cool, right up to 10% CO2, which gives you a CO2 of around about in the high 90s. What the editors didn't allow us publish here was the animals that are over here. And they were animals with 20% CO2. And all of those animals had perfect lungs, but unfortunately, 80% of them were dead. So you might say, well, that's a bit of a problem. It's not really a problem. It makes it biologically plausible. There is no therapy that we know of where more is better ad infinitum. So there's something beneficial, at least to the lungs, in this model, in the modest range of added CO2. You can see here, therapeutic hypercapnia uh, prevents chronic hypoxia-induced pulmonary hypertension. Here you can see that uh, when animals versus controls are subject to low oxygen levels, what you can see is an increase in the right ventricular hypertrophy. And if they're uh, growing up exposed to 5% CO2 or 10% CO2, the amount of hypertrophy they develop is a lot less. And you might say, well, hang on a second, doesn't hypercapnia augment, make worse hypoxic pulmonary vasoconstriction? Yes, it does acutely. Chronically, it seems to, in fact, reduce it. So this could be an important issue, potentially. And what you can see, in fact, is how that works, where you have pre-proendothelin, which is the precursor of endothelin, that is the pulmonary vasoconstrictor. And in the context of hypoxia, there's a lot, uh, um, I beg your pardon, in hypoxia, there is a lot of, uh, with no CO2, there's a lot of uh, endothelin precursor, and a lot less when CO2 is added. A very important question is what happens in infection? <clears throat> because much of the patient's problems that we look after involves infection. They come in with infection or they acquire infection. And so Moraine um, Hongoil, working with John Laffey in Galway in Ireland, looked at a short-term model of acute infection. And what you can see here is that uh, the ratio of airspace to tissue is adverse in the context of normal capnia and in the context of hypercapnic acidosis, there's less tissue and more airspace. And that means the lungs are less congested and there's less inflammation. And so in this context, hypercapnia seems to be good. If you're looking after a rat who has a six hour history of pneumonia. Of pneumonia. But if you're looking at a much more realistic model, you can see a two day model here of E. coli pneumonia. And what you can see here is that in the context of CO2 with E. coli, it's not better compared with baseline. It actually seems to be worse. And when they took samples of the lung and did a colony count for E. coli, they saw that with hypercapnia, over days, there's more bugs. Well, how could that be? Well, it looks like it's not good. And why is that the case? They looked at the neutrophil function. Neutrophils very bad when they're overactive, but very necessary when you're trying to clear E. coli. And in fact, the neutrophils are hypoactive, allowing proliferation of the E. coli and worsening of the clinical context. 
in the context of ventilator-induced lung injury, just pure stretch-induced lung injury, things are better. With low tidal volume, the elastance doesn't really change. With high tidal volume, the elastance increases. Elastance is the reciprocal of compliance, and therefore higher values are bad. But high tidal volume in the context of CO2, you still get injury, but a lot less so. So what you can see here is it kind of depends on the model. There is no way that high CO2 is good for everything. It's clearly bad for some things and good for other things. Could it be beneficial to patients? Well, Mariani showed here with uh, permissive hypercapnia that the time left on mechanical ventilation was in fact a lot shorter. Maybe good. David Cregno did a retrospective review of the ARDS database and suggested that for patients in the high tidal volume group, that the presence of, of hypercapnic acidosis was protective, protecting them against ventilator-induced lung injury, just like our mice. But in the patients with a low tidal volume, who are not getting ventilator-induced lung injury, it made no difference. Does the brain matter in this context? It does. If you're exposed to high CO2s, uh, then you withdraw CO2 or expose the patient to low CO2, what you will get is cerebral vasoconstriction. Cerebral vasodilation may be good in some contexts. Cerebral vasoconstriction can be very good in some contexts too. If you're about to die from cerebral herniation, then you want to have cerebral vasoconstriction. But if you're not about to die from herniation, cerebral vasoconstriction is probably bad for your brain like many things, sometimes good and sometimes bad. Why is that? Because you get cerebral vasoconstriction, a leftward shift of the hemoglobin oxygen dissociation curve means you get less flow and the blood that does flow to the brain is less able to give it oxygen. Plus, with hypocapnia, you get an increase in seizure threat, um, potential, increase in metabolism, so it does exactly the wrong thing for O2 supply demand. And if you have a patient, for example, with hyperventilation and severe DKA, and you intubate that patient and normalize your CO2, you'll cause great harm. You can see here a small, seems like a small increase in CO2, gives a big decrease here in CSF pH. And when the patient, in fact, is particularly hyperventilating to begin with, that increase is a whole lot greater. And many of us have seen, first or second hand, a kid with a metabolic encephalopathy, hyperventilating, low CO2, gets intubated, CO2 normalized, and that patient can herniate and die. You can see here a patient with Moya Moya syndrome with cerebral CO2 given, and there is lighting up only of the left side of the brain, and with corrective surgery, you can test the cerebral circulation and see that the brain is now perfused. So like everything else, is there a balance? It's not as if too much, too little will be good for every patient. Because patients are different in groups, and patients' organs are different, and their diseases are different at different times of their illness. So we do not know how to balance CO2, except maybe to prevent cerebral herniation or cerebral pulmonary vasoconstriction. So there is undoubtedly a balance. There's evidence of benefit and evidence of harm in almost all areas of this. Here's a good example to finish up with. 
Drs. Tasker and Peters provided this image here. It's a young boy with an uh, ARDS, and here you would naturally go for lung protective ventilation, however you do that. When you do that, you're going to get hypercapnia, which would be fine, except this poor boy has ARDS from meningoencephalitis, systemic meningococcemia. And so hypercapnia here might be fine with low stretch, won't be fine at all here, at least not acutely. So with the CVO2 monitor, they were able to actually titrate this to get a decent outcome. In summary, hypercapnia works in some experiments, but not all of them. It seems safe clinically at the bedside. You have to judge things as best you can, and it's a mixed picture. People think we need outcome studies. I suggest that we wouldn't even know how to design an outcome study for hypercapnia at this stage. Thank you very much. This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide. For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org.